0: Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father, and of Jesus our Lord. Father, it is a delightful thing to be gathered as your people, and it is so true that the the, the delight of Zion, the longing of your people to gather where you are found, to be in your courts, to gather in your presence. The Israelites who held Zion in the, in the place of preciousness in their hearts longed for that day of renewal that would come. And as we've been reminded, your dwelling place is now your church. Church. And Father, it's a truth that we speak of. It's a truth that in some sense, I think most Christians would acknowledge. But I wonder how often we live in light of that great truth of how it is that our God is for us, how it is that we have become individually, but even more so together, the dwelling of our God in the spirit. A transcendent truth and yet what ought to be the most precious truth. Christ in us, the hope, the sure hope of glory. I pray, Father, as we continue our worship, as we consider this exhortation from your servant who penned this epistle so long ago to Christians who were struggling Christians who were fearful, Christians who were discouraged, Christians who were tempted to give up, to walk away, to return to what they knew, to seek relief, I pray that his words, his exhortation, his heart would minister to us. Because we too are a people who struggle in many ways. Give us ears to hear. And by your good spirit, teach us, encourage us, exhort us. And Father, may we leave today as a people who have grown. As a people who continue by the power and grace of your spirit to grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. We commit this time to you. Father, we ask for your blessing upon it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, we continue with our closing exhortations in the epistle to the Hebrews. And I just want to say again that all of these exhortations are... uh, situated within the writer's larger concern and his wider instruction. We don't want to divorce them and treat them in abstraction in any sense. Uh, This, in many ways, is kind of the practical climax uh, to the instruction that he has brought, the way that he has tried to uh, encourage and, and provide a nurturing to the faith and the faithfulness of these Hebrews who were being challenged and struggling in so many ways. And, and we know that after all the months we've spent in the epistle, uh, that, that the writer was writing to them to encourage them to persevere, to not lose hope to recognize that their suffering was very much in the Lord's hands and was a part of his good work in them and towards them. And he also recognized, as is human uh, nature, that they were being tempted to seek relief. When we're pressed, when we suffer, when it's difficult, when it hurts, our instinct is to seek relief, to seek a way out. And so he wasn't simply giving them just, as I've said, some sort of high sterile clinical Christology, but he was rehearsing with them in a very careful way, but in a a fresh and a very thorough way, who this Messiah is that they've embraced and what it is that he's accomplished and what it means to hold on to him in a very practical sense that through that renewed knowledge through that renewed conviction that they would stand fast. And he said that in chapter 10, after all you've suffered, you have need of endurance. So that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. The consummation to come. Well, read with me. I'd like to pick this up at verse 1, just again to set the context. We're going to be considering specifically verses 5 and 6 today, but I'd like to read all six of these first verses of chapter 13. He says, Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect, stop neglecting the showing of hospitality to strangers. For by this some have entertain angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, I will never forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what shall man do to me? Well, this, these two verses, verses 5 and 6, this next exhortation doesn't directly sit under this category of love for the brethren, but it does indirectly. Because what he's calling for is fundamentally grounded in love for God And love for the brethren is derivative of that, right? Love for the brethren has its basis, it has its substance in love for God. And so it is related to this obligation of love to the household of faith, and even more than in that indirect way, by way of example. Our faithfulness to what he's exhorting here becomes an example for good or for ill to our brothers and sisters, Either we will encourage them by our adherence to this or our lack of adherence, or we will actually contribute to others wandering astray. Well, it's a very simple exhortation in many ways, but very profound. And I I want to treat it in terms of the actual concern that the writer has and then the two scriptural texts that he uses to support or to, in a sense, flesh out his meaning. And like everything throughout this epistle, and just as a general principle of reading and interpreting the scripture, we have to, as I said, view this exhortation through the lens of the wider context, through the lens of the overall concern and instruction that the writer is bringing to bear, his overall intent in this epistle, This isn't just a stepping aside. Oh, by the way, let me talk about something else. So we have to look through the lens of the epistle more uh, broadly, but also it's critically important to read this through the lens of actually the way he explains his meaning. And my point in, in starting there is to hopefully we recognize that the writer's concern isn't just simply greed or materialism or wanting more stuff in some sort of a, you know, kind of a basic way. That would be very much out of context to say, oh, by the way, you, you shouldn't be seeking more stuff. You shouldn't be wanting more stuff. You shouldn't be greedy. You shouldn't be covetous. Even this idea of money love, as we'll see, uh, has to be thought through in this context. So he's not he's not exhorting them concerning simply what we would call a greediness, a dissatisfaction, a longing with respect to material possessions. If we conclude that and leave it at that, then we've really missed his point. What he's really getting at here is the natural human propensity to seek relief and well-being through natural resource. Material resource, not just in terms of stuff, but that which is under the sun. He's, He's putting his finger on this natural human propensity To seek well-being and relief from the lack of perceived well-being through natural under-the-sun resource. To look for deliverance, to look for security in that which is under the sun. That's much more profound than simply, you know, don't be upset because you're only making 50 grand a year and not $600,000 a year. All human beings share this instinct. This is natural to all of us. And you see it as characteristic of Israel throughout its history, beginning all the way with the patriarchs, the foundation of Israel. You see this principle at work. Abraham handing over Sarah to Pharaoh and then to Abimelech. Why? Because he was afraid. Harm will come to me. They will see her. They will take her. You know, they 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 will come and, 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 and harm will come to me because of her. So I will give her over. You saw the same sort of thing with Isaac. You saw it with Jacob. Even the account where his name is changed from Jacob to Yisrael, Israel, the one who prevails with God. It's set in a context... The name of the place is Mahanaim, two camps. Why is it named two camps? Because as Jacob comes into this camp and he knows Esau is coming to meet him, Esau, who he's been estranged from for a long time, he sends his family over across the river. He divides up the people. So if they attack here, at least these will be spared. He's strategizing how to make this thing go okay for him. He's afraid. He's afraid. And it's in that context that he's encountered by a man who uh, presents himself under the name of Yahweh. And he wrestles with him and Jacob prevails from a position of absolute weakness. Right. The man touches his hip and his hips out of joint. And yet he prevails in wrestling till dawn with that one with his hip out of joint. He prevails because The one who wrestles with him causes him to prevail. He prevails in a context of absolute weakness, absolute dependence. It's a derived triumph. But you see this even throughout Israel's life, and the prophets constantly rebuke them because they were pursuing other gods in the hope of fertility, in the hope of well being. Well, it seems to go well for these Canaanites worshiping Baal. So yeah, we'll hang on to Yahweh, but we'll also worship Baal. We'll also build our Asherah. We'll also, uh, you know, offer our children in the fire to Moloch. And that comes to its crisis with Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? Choose this day. If God is Lord, if Yahweh is Lord, serve him. If Baal is Lord, serve him. How long will you hesitate between two convictions, And Israel was constantly looking to form allegiances, alliances with other nations, figure things out, do things that would allow them to hopefully secure their well-being, to solve problems of threat, problems of natural things under the sun, problems associated with famine or with, you know, threat of whatever type. And in Isaiah, God says, stop looking anxiously about you. Egypt won't profit you. Assyria won't profit you. I am he. I am the Holy One of Israel. This is a natural propensity to look under the sun to remedy our situation. Either to secure our well-being or to find some sort of relief in the things that we're suffering. And that's what the writer is really putting his finger on. He uses the language here in verse 5 of what what represents an overall disposition or orientation. This isn't simply a conduct thing uh, that we can say, okay, I, I shouldn't be greedy. He's talking about an overall way of thinking and orienting ourselves in life. The Greek noun here that's rendered Uh, your character, let your character be free. It actually speaks of a pattern of a certain form or a manner that represents or describes in a kind of a summary way, a thing, a person, a circumstance. It's like a paradigm or a pattern and what and in context here what he's getting at is the defining course or characteristic or pattern of one's life not a particular behavior not a particular conduct at a moment in time but the character characteristic or defining pattern of a person's life and the thing that is this pattern that he's speaking of some versions translated as covetousness I read from the new American standard uh, which renders it as uh, love of money it's a term that isn't used but a couple of times in the New Testament and and it does have a literal sense of of a love for resource that that which is uh, you know under the sun so to speak But it connotes that this is the important thing that I want to get at here. The the connotation behind this this idea is an orientation of grasping. Grasping at something and and holding on to something. If you want to express it negatively, it would be the absence of a generous and open-handed disposition. Disposition. And I was reluctant to use that adjective, generous, just because we tend to think, okay, do I give my money away? Do I not give my money away? And that could be one aspect of it. But I like to think of it better as an open-handed disposition. A la Psalm 104. God opens his hands. The creatures receive from his hand. They're satisfied with good. And the implication in that psalm is there's only one of God's creatures that doesn't live in an open-handed, trusting, receiving way with God, and that's man. Man does not derive his benefit from God with that same sort of confident, open-handed receptivity. There's a grasping, there's a holding This is a grasping approach to life, and covetousness is not a bad way to render it, but the problem, like with all terms, is that they have a connotation uh, in a given culture or you know within a given uh, time or place or whatever and We tend to think of covetousness in terms of this idea of wanting to keep up with the Joneses, you know the bigger house or You know, why don't I have that job? Or, you know, he's got a prettier wife than I have. Or, you know, their kids are better than our kids. Or he has a better job. Or, you know, the covetousness that's grasping after the next best, greatest thing. Keeping up with the Joneses. Competing with the neighbors. And the writer isn't so much getting at this compulsion to acquire or a compulsion to want the next thing but really the motivation that lies behind not just the compulsion to get things, but this compulsion that is a grasping sort of orientation. He's, he's really pointing to his, his goal is to get at the motivation or the impetus behind it. What sustains that kind of disposition and orientation in life? And you can say, well, but he exhorted his readers to be content with what they had, and he does. But he means that in a certain sense. It's not be content with your $50,000 job or be content, you know, with your 10-year-old bicycle. You don't need to go spend $10,000 on the latest and greatest bicycle. This be content with what you have, he means it in the sense of finding contentment in life's circumstance, Being at peace with life's circumstance. All of which comprises our present existence is what he's getting at. Not the stuff that we have per se. But being at peace with the lay of the land. All of the things that comprise our present existence. So he's not dealing with issues of, you know, a grasping after or a preoccupation with material things. He's also not calling for an austere lifestyle. You know, this isn't a call to go live a monastic life and live in a refrigerator box or, you know, only have five dollars in your wallet or whatever. That's not what he's getting at. If we come away with that, okay, I don't want to be greedy. I don't want to wish I had a better job. I don't, then we're going to miss the point that he's getting at. We have to keep this within, again, the larger context of the epistle itself. The contentment that he's really pointing to and that he's exhorting them to pertains to this thing of our sense of sufficiency. See, covetousness really is grounded in the sense of insufficiency. I lack something. There's something I need. There's something I want. There's something I ought to have. This is about our sense of sufficiency, but the sufficiency not of our possessions, but the sufficiency that we find in God himself. This is really what Paul is getting at in Philippians 4. Well-fed, hungry, plenty, want. He paints all of these extremes of circumstance, and he says, I've learned the secret of contentment in any and every circumstance. And if it's not clear at this point, and you think I'm, Maybe perhaps just making this up or beating a a drum that isn't really what he's getting at. If we look at the scriptural support that he gives to us, it becomes very clear what he's getting at. He gives two citations here. The first summarizes God's pledge. The second, in other words, what is God's promise or pledge to his people? And then the second is, what is their rightful response to what it is that God has pledged? What has God told us that is true? What has he told us about himself? What has he promised in the broadest sense of that, the most comprehensive sense of that? And what is the rightful response of people to that promise? Well, his first citation is, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Now, again, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Different versions render it different ways. This one's interesting because it's not tied to any one particular context. He's not citing a particular verse. You see uh, a semblance of this in at least three different places in Israel's scripture that I I will mention to you. But what's interesting is that he introduces this as God's statement, as God's pledge himself. He himself has said, he himself. The writer uses in Greek what's called an intensive pronoun. It's put in there for emphasis to make it intensive. He himself, God himself has said. This is not somebody's theory. This is not somebody else's commentary on God. God himself has said this. He's emphasizing the truth that these words, again, this this is in many ways organic throughout the scriptures. But there are three places where I'm going to mention where you see something resembling this statement that he says God has made. But I think the writer's point in, in saying this is that he recognizes and he wants his readers to recognize that the truth that these words express... This statement itself lies at the heart of the scriptural message and its insistence on God's abiding faithfulness. In many ways, this thing, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, is the heart of the scripture's message. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. God himself has said this. You see in Deuteronomy 31, where Moses is exhorting the people, he says, I'm not going to go into the land with you. God will not let me bring you into the land, but he will bring you. And you must be courageous. You must be strong. It's not going to be easy. But he will bring you in. He will not fail you. He will not forsake you. And then you see after the, as they're preparing to come in under Joshua in the first chapter of Joshua, God says to Joshua himself, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Be courageous. Don't be fearful. I will bring you in. I will not fail you. I will not forsake you. And then you see, as David is commissioning Solomon to build the Lord's house, David is not going to build it. He's done all the preparatory work, but Solomon is to build the house, the temple. And he tells Solomon, be courageous. He tells him, be about the work, be diligent in the work. For the Lord will not fail you. He will not forsake you. Be diligent to complete the whole work of building Yahweh's house. He will not fail you or forsake you. And the writer here expresses it. Again, it's kind of a summary sort of idea, but he expresses it in the strongest, most emphatic terms. He does it by way of negation. I will not in any way possibly conceivably fail you. I will not in any way possibly, no way, no how, no way will I ever forsake you or fail you. It underscores that what was true for Abraham's descendants, as Moses spoke it to the sons of Israel, as God spoke it to Joshua on behalf of the covenant household, as uh, David spoke it to Solomon on behalf of the advance of the covenant kingdom in the establishing of Yahweh's dwelling on Mount Zion in Jerusalem... As God had made this pledge to Abraham's descendants, the writer is telling his readers, you the descendants of you the descendants of the Abrahamic people, but as sons of Abraham indeed, this pledge still stands for you. I will not fail you or forsake you. If it was God's oath to the Abrahamic people in the time of preparation, how much more is it his oath to those who are sons of Abraham indeed through union with the Messiah. The seed of Abraham, to whom God had made the promise. And there are two kind of complementary parts to this. As I said, different versions render it different ways. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, in terms of the new American standard. I don't know what version you're reading from. But the first half of this focuses more on the commitment itself. The second on the divine conduct that follows from that commitment. It really has this idea, I will never let go of you. And there's kind of a play on ideas here that isn't maybe all that obvious. But he's saying to his readers, the writer is saying to his readers, don't let yourself be characterized by this grasping disposition in life. And then he says, God grasps you. He will never let go of you. He will not let go of you and he will not forsake you. Two different ideas. Letting go is the releasing of you, either for your own, because of your own wanting to wander, your own wanting to be rid and and let go from God's hand. He won't let go of you, but he also won't forsake you in his heart or his purposes. He won't turn away from you in his own disposition. He holds tightly to his children even when they try to wander from him, and they need not fear that he will walk away from them. The second citation is is actually the Septuagint rendering of Septuagint is the Greek version of the the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 118. It's from verse 6 of Psalm 118. The way it reads in in the actual psalm is, uh, The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's what he's citing from, verbatim from the Septuagint rendering of Psalm 118.6. This is the expression, that, that statement from the psalm gives expression to the appropriate human response to God's pledge, I will never let you go and I will never forsake you. I will never turn away from you in my heart, in my commitment. And the response that should come to that pledge from God That pledge of his undying, unyielding, unwavering faithfulness is faithfulness in kind. What is our response to the God who is faithful? Faithfulness to God. Faithfulness to God. The faithfulness that manifests itself in steadfast courage, endurance, perseverance, and hope. Now we see how this ties into the larger message of the epistle. You have need of endurance. Hold on. He who is coming will come and he will not delay, but my faithful one, my righteous one, will live by his faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And the writer says, we are not among those who shrink back. The whole epistle is about persevere. Don't be distracted. Don't be led astray. Continue, continue. Remember, understand who this God is. Understand what he's done. Understand what it means that you've embraced the Messiah. Persevering in faith. Because Yahweh's covenant faithfulness, this is the idea of loving kindness. Here's the way the psalm begins. Give thanks to the Lord, L-O-R-D capital. It's Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. This is his covenant name. The, one, the, the word means he is. Yeah, yeah, he is Yahweh. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his loving kindness his covenant faithfulness is everlasting. Oh let Israel say his covenant faithfulness is everlasting. Oh let the house of Aaron say the priesthood say his covenant faithfulness is everlasting. Let those who fear Yahweh say fear not in the sense of I'm afraid of him but fear in the sense of a of a submitted devoted awe-filled reverence for the Lord. Let them say his covenant faithfulness is everlasting. Because Yahweh is faithful, his children refuse to fear. They refuse to yield to discouragement or despair, even in the deepest distress. Verse five, from my distress, I called upon Yahweh. He answered me and he set me in a large place. Yahweh is for me, I will not fear, what can man do to me? See, the writer is is citing a particular statement from a particular verse, but we have to understand the setting in which that verse occurs, the larger context and significance of the psalm. they were to find their sufficiency in their faithful God and Father because he is for them in a way that no human being can be for them. Even the most powerful, even the most committed, even the most devoted human being cannot be for God's children the way he is for them. That's what the psalm is getting at. Verse 7, again, the Lord is for me among those who help me. Among all who help me, he's for me in a unique way. And therefore I shall look with peace, with settledness on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in him than to trust even in princes. Why princes? Because the point is, those who have the power and the resource to secure my well-being can't begin to be for me in, a, in an effectual way, in the way that God himself is for, for me. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying He's calling his readers that we're not to grasp for resource to deliver us from adversity to secure or or somehow uh, uh, ensure our well-being. He's calling them to not be that sort of grasping people, seeking for remedy, seeking for relief, seeking for a solution, And they're not to fear what men can do to them. Human power is limited to this life. Didn't Jesus say that? Don't fear men who can kill the body. Fear the one who having killed the body will destroy body and spirit in hell. Death is the greatest enemy that we face. The worst that anyone can do to anyone is to take their life. That's the thing that people fear the most. Death is the great enemy. But the God whose faithfulness is everlasting, and this is in the context of not just of this psalm, but all of the preparatory scriptures, is that God has pledged to swallow up death in life. And he has done that in substance in Jesus. The resurrection is the substance and the proof that God has swallowed up death in life. And so Paul in writing to the Corinthians in chapter 15, he says, understanding that we are appointed God's pledge to us, bound up in this, I will never let go of you, I will never forsake you, is that his purposes for us and in us will be completed. We will be in our own bodies sharers in the resurrection of the Messiah, even as we are now sharers in his resurrection in the inner man, raised up in Christ, seated in the heavenly place in him, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. But the promise of God is, the, is that death itself will finally be done away. It is a conquered foe. It's already been conquered in the Messiah. And his resurrection is the promise of life out of death for the whole creation. That's Romans 8. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, in view of this, mortality being clothed with immortality... Corruption being clothed with incorruption, death being its sting being taken away. He says, be courageous. Persevere in your faithfulness. Your labors in the Lord are not in vain. Your labors in the Lord are not in vain. This was the hope of the conquering of death, life out of death that the Israelites lived in the hope of. And it is what has now come in Jesus' own resurrection. What is the outcome God has promised, life out of death? How do we know that his word is sure? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. His resurrection is the pledge, the surety of our final resurrection. And the spirit is the Arabon. He is the down payment. He is the pledge of the fullness to come because by the spirit, we are already raised up in the Messiah, in the inner man. The outer man is perishing. The inner man is being renewed day by day so that we do not look on what is seen, but what is unseen. What is seen is passing. What is unseen is eternal, everlasting. So here's the way that I'd like to leave it with you all today. Again, keeping this in its context, we know from the epistle, these Hebrew Christians had suffered much. If you just go back to chapter 10, he talks about all that they had endured in the faith. Suffering in loss of property, suffering in loss of status, suffering in being marginalized or pushed away from their own community, being isolated cut off from their kinsmen, suffering in imprisonment, suffering in beatings, suffering in all sorts of ways. And the writer nowhere suggests that things are going to get better for them. Nowhere in the epistle does he say that was the past. Don't worry about it. Now it's all going to be good. He does not promise them that things are going to get better for them. And he also understood, because he was a human being, and we all understand this, that fear was a primary force, a primary motivator pressing against their faithfulness. Fear. Fear in all sorts of forms. Fear of physical suffering, fear of the insecurity of losing property, losing one's means of support, well-being, material loss, but also a very profound fear, which is the fear that perhaps their Jewish countrymen were right and they had actually missed it, that they had actually departed from the God of Israel, embracing Jesus as the Messiah, wasn't that the constant drumbeat of the Jews even with respect to Jesus and those who followed him he's a false messiah false messiah he's a pretender he's leading you astray he's a usurper do not follow him and the writer throughout the epistle is addressing their fear not by promising that things are going to get better in their circumstance, but by resituating their circumstances and the uncertainties and the difficulties they were enduring. What do I mean, resituating them? Placing them in a different light. He's placing their circumstances in a different light. He's helping them through all of this instruction about this God of Israel that your fathers followed, that you have followed, and all of what God has done and how his word has been yes and amen in the Messiah. And here's what he's accomplished. And don't let people distract you. And don't let people cause you to be afraid. And don't listen to your countrymen who are saying, return back, return back. There's nothing to return back to. All has become yes and amen in Jesus. He's calling them through all of this instruction in the epistle to perceive their circumstances and even their internal struggles through the lens of the truth of what it means that God has proven faithful and that he will never let go of you and he will never forsake you. He wanted them to consider in, again, a full-orbed, comprehensive, very Jewish way, God's triumph in Jesus of Nazareth and the significance of that for those who embrace him and the significance of that for their lives in this world. And so this exhortation against what appears to be an exhortation against greed is really an exhortation at bottom to live in assured hope without fear. What causes this grasping? Something could happen. What about this? What about that? I need this. I need that. Things are insecure. Things are uncertain. I have to figure out a remedy. I have to figure out how to fix this. He wants them to live in assured hope without fear, having an open hand, not a grasping hand, an open hand that finds all resource and sufficiency in the God of Israel, who in Jesus has proven out his enduring, undistracted, never changing faithfulness. I will never let go of you. I will never forsake you. God is for you. What can man do to me? Well, how do we apply this instruction? And to me, it comes down to what I, I mentioned a few minutes ago about Paul in Philippians 4. What is, how do we learn the secret, the mystery of contentment? Paul calls it a mystery. Why? Because it doesn't come naturally to us. It's something that is not instinctive or intuitive. And we say, well, I, you know, I know what it is to be content. Yeah, right now in this circumstance, but you won't be content tomorrow because life's always changing. That's not contentment. There's a mystery to it because it's not a part of our natural existence. How do we learn the secret of contentment? And the simple answer is this by reordering our minds, not seeking to redress our circumstances. See, that's what Paul's getting at in Philippians 4. He paints all of these different circumstantial scenarios at the extreme having nothing, having plenty, being well fed, being hungry. He's not arguing in the middle. He's arguing at the extreme. And he says, in all of these ways in which life can be very extreme, I'm settled. I have all sufficiency in the power of Christ unto me. That's effectively what he's getting at. So what does this look like maybe in more practical terms, in terms of reordering our minds. In some ways, this is kind of what we were getting at in the Sunday school hour about being thinking people, people who have knowledge. The relation between knowledge and wisdom. The Christian life is about thinking. It's not about doing first and foremost. It's about thinking. Don't you know who you are? Don't you understand? That's what the writer's doing throughout the epistle to the Hebrews. Don't you know? Don't you understand? Don't you see how God has accomplished and fulfilled all this in the Messiah? Yes, Moses, but the greater. Yes, the priesthood, but the greater. Yes, the covenant, but the greater. So what does this look like to reorder our minds? Well, the first thing, again, trying to stay with the the epistle to the Hebrews, but more broadly biblically, It begins with believing that God's victory is complete in Jesus. One of the worst things about some of our contemporary theology is that we just, you know, people, Christians think in terms of the world's going to hell in a handbasket and we're just going to go hide somewhere and wait for the rapture to get out of here. And then God will be victorious. Then at the end of the tribulation, then Jesus will come back and then there'll be a victory. And then Jesus will sit on the throne. And then finally things will get sorted out. Jesus sent out his disciples saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Paul says that this power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be illumined, that you would recognize that same power that is unto us who believe. This begins by recognizing that God has fully accomplished his victory in the Messiah. Is everything now taken up in him? No. But the victory has been won. Christ is reigning and ruling. I say to people all the time, you know, we want to say he's a priest right now up at the right hand of God in some sense interceding for us. One day he'll be sitting on a throne. The scripture won't let you do that. The priesthood and the kingship stand together. That's what Zechariah is telling us. Jesus is ruling as a priest on his throne, and that's Romans 8. Christ Jesus, who died, yea, rather is raised, seated at the right hand of God, is continually interceding for us. What then shall separate us from the love of God? Trouble, trial, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword. No, in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. It's not just a well-wisher up in heaven interceding for us. It's the one who all authority in heaven and earth belongs to. See, a greeting card that says, get well soon, it might be a nice gesture, but it's meaningless, right? What we want is not the well-wishing, we want the power to achieve what is pledged. Christ Jesus, seated at the right hand of power, above all rule and authority and power and dominion, is the one interceding for us. What then can separate us from the effectual love of God in Christ? What? Trouble, trial, peril, persecution, famine, nakedness, the sword? No. Nothing in all of nothing under the sun, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8. We believe that God's victory is complete in Jesus. Paul writes from Prison in Colossae, telling them that by his cross, Jesus has triumphed over all the powers and the principalities on earth and in the heavenly places. Well, wait a minute, Paul, you're in prison. How can you say that Jesus has triumphed over all the rulers and authorities and powers and principalities? Paul understood what I'm getting at the triumph of God in the Messiah, irrespective of what meets our personal experience. We have to believe that. Not intellectually, we have to own it. We have to own it. And secondly, related to that flowing out of it, is we have to believe that we who are Christians actually share in that victory as sharers in him. Not one day there will be some victory for us. See, Romans 8 isn't saying one day, one day. Paul says, no, right now. When we were dead in transgressions and sin, God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up in him and seated us in the heavenly places in him. Every spiritual blessing in the Messiah. We inhabit the heavenly realm. We are seated at the right hand of power in the Messiah. That's what Paul says. I pray that the eyes of your hearts would be illumined. You believers at Ephesus, that you would understand the hope of his calling, that you would understand the riches of the glory of the inheritance that is yours as the saints, and that you would truly know and embrace the surpassing greatness of this power that works in us and for us. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave has raised us from the dead. Do you believe that? Do we believe that we have already a full share in the victory in the Messiah? Yes, we all face mortality. Yes, death is our greatest enemy. But again, it is already a conquered foe. Jesus said, whoever believes in me has passed out of death into life. Are our bodies going to die? Yes, but it doesn't, doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. Already our spirits are alive in the Messiah and that life is the promise of the resurrection to come. So we're not looking for the day when we're rid of this, you know, decrepit, falling apart corpse so our spirits can go off and, and be free from our bodies. Paul says, I'm not longing to be unclothed. I'm longing to be clothed with the skene, the tent, the dwelling that God has prepared for me in the heavenly places. I'm longing for the completion of this work of resurrection as my body becomes a sharer in the renewal in Jesus, just as my spirit now is. What are they going to do to us? Kill us? Oh, well. Paul, when he's in Philippi, he again in prison and he says, I'm writing this to encourage you. I know many of you are are discouraged because you see me in prison, but don't be. This has worked out for the good of the church. It's worked out in that this testimony has caused many to come to faith. And the truth is for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. I'd actually in many ways prefer to die and go and be with the Lord as the next step in this process of my own Christiformity. But God has made it clear to me that it's better that I remain. And so I will remain and happily so. We're always, if we're believers, we're bearing about in our bodies the dying of the Lord Jesus, that as his life is being perfected in us. Why do we grasp? Why are we so fearful? Why do we hold on? Why do we worry so much? Well, what if this? What if that? And I'm not saying don't care at all about our physical health or whatever, but there's this grasping, there's this this holding on. We already share in this victory that Jesus has, and therefore death has no hold on us. And then thirdly, related to that in terms of the vicissitudes, the struggles, the ups and downs of life, we must believe that God is with us and fully committed to us as we, by his power in the spirit, as we have become his dwelling place. How is God with us? How is he for us? He has taken us up in his own life. He has bound us to himself. He has humanized himself in the Messiah. And as we are sharers in him, we are taken up in the very being of God. How is he with us? How is he for us in that way? The vision in Revelation 1 is the glorified Messiah in the midst of the lampstands, right? In the midst of the lampstands. And we must believe then, fourthly, that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that is at work in us and for us. And that doesn't mean that, that, you know, it's not the king's kid thing. Okay, well, I'm the son of the king, therefore I'm going to float above the fray and everything's going to fall into place and I'm not going to have any trouble because, you know, kings have all the power and, and so this is going to be an easy thing. Our royal status is the sharing in the royal status of the Messiah, which was a life of hardship. If we could have lived Jesus' life on the earth and we actually knew what it was like, most of us would say, no thanks. No thanks. I need a break. That's too tough. Come on, can I have a vacation? I mean, come on, this is just really difficult dealing with these people, dealing with these problems, slander, abuse, mistreatment, finally culminating in crucifixion. There's the life of the king's kid. Saints, we have to fight the battle in our minds. It's the battle against natural thinking and the fruit that natural thinking bears. This is the thinking that is ordered by our senses and our experience, what Paul calls sensuality. What comes to us naturally, the way things seem, the way it appears, measuring things by my circumstances, measuring things by my experiences. Measuring things by what I can see or what I can uh, 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 appropriate with my senses rather than by the conviction of the truth. We have to do business with this sense and we, we all do. We live as if God is very distant from us. Oh yes, we can pray and he'll hear us but he's up there in heaven. But if we pray, he will hear us somehow. And we hope that not, you know, a billion people are praying because you probably can't sort out all those messages at the same time. But he's up there, but somehow we think he can hear us. And, you know, we joke sometimes about as a pastor, people ask me, well, pray for me for this, pray as if I've got the bat phone to heaven, you know. We, we have to get over this idea of God is distant from us. This is what Paul said, don't you know? Don't you understand We are the dwelling of God in the Spirit. He's not out there someplace. He is our life. We are taken up in the life of God in the Messiah. We don't we got to get past this sense that he's he's not aware of our circumstances. He's not aware of our concerns. These things escape his notice because out of sight out of mind. He's up there in heaven. So I have to constantly put in front of him, God help me with this. God, you know, understand this, God, let me tell you what's going on. Like writing a letter to a distant friend or something. He's not removed from our circumstances. He's not removed from our concerns. We have to also guard against the instinct that all of us have, the instinct of self-preservation and self-remedy. It hurts. How do I fix it? It's bad. How do I fix it? It's wrong. How do I fix it? How do I solve it? How do I get rid of this insecurity? Fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it. And our prayer life is very much oriented that way. God, it hurts. Fix it. God, it's hard. Fix it. God, it's broken. Fix it. Our instinct to preserve ourselves, to remedy our issues. And this takes all kinds of forms. A primary one is religion. Magic. Manipulating spiritual powers and forces to achieve the outcome we seek. And we do this as Christians. God, how could my spouse get cancer? I've been a faithful believer all these lives, all these years. I've given my money. I've taught Sunday school. Look at all I've done. I've offered the, proper, the appropriate offerings and sacrifices. And here I am praying and praying and cutting myself like the priests of Baal, right? Hear me, hear me, hear me boiling the, you know, the, the, the eye of newt and the, the frog's leg or whatever in the water to you know, achieve some kind of outcome with the deity. Don't we do that? A primary source of remedy is what we call spirituality, trusting God. No, we're employing this thing called magic. We're trying to manipulate God to get what we want out of him. And when things don't go our way, our first thing is to say, God, why me? God, how could you? And that shows that our relationship with him is purely magic. It's manipulation. We have to guard against, and this is where really the battle is fought, we have to guard and, and, and fight back against this lack of mental and spiritual discipline. We've got to be disciplined people. We've got to be disciplined people. We've got to be people who labor to grow up in Christ, to put on and nurture the mind of Christ. If the battle is fought in our heads, and it is, then we have to equip our heads, right? And this isn't an intellectual exercise. This is about our being conformed to the image of Christ. This is about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have to be disciplined Individually and corporately to grow up in all things into Christ. This is the idea, as in Paul's language, of failing to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought captive. He says we tear down strongholds. We tear down every strongholds in our minds. Ways of thinking, ways of understanding. We tear down these things that seem to be lofty but are actually raised up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And failing to do that is going to nurture these natural things of self-preoccupation, self-concern, misperception, wrong judgment, wrong assessment. And all of that results in all of these things that we all know are a part of our lives when we are undisciplined. Doubts, fears, insecurities, discouragement, instability, resentment, despair, depression. All of these things that are hallmarks of natural human existence, right? Paul said that contentment looks like, in the image that comes to my mind, is a ship that the anchor is deep and held tightly in the rock at the bottom of the ocean. And the waves are doing this, and the wind is blowing, and it's howling and roaring, and the ship is sitting there. It's easy for the ship to sit there stable and steady when the water's calm, when the wind's calm, right? It's easy for our lives to be steady and stable when everything's smooth sailing, when it's going the way we want. When it's not going the way we want, that's where despair, that's where discouragement, that's where frustration, resentment, grasping. Got to fix this. Got to figure this out. Got to get this sorted out. So I just want to close reading Psalm 118 with you. Since the writer drew from it, this is going to be the marrow of my closing prayer. Give thanks to Yahweh for he is good. His covenant faithfulness is everlasting. It endures forever. Let Israel say his covenant faithfulness is everlasting. Let the house of Aaron say his covenant faithfulness is everlasting. God's faithfulness to his purposes and promises. Let those who worship him in truth, in fear, in the right way, say, his covenant faithfulness is everlasting. From my distress, I called upon Yahweh, and he answered me and set me in a large place. He is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among all of those. He stands out among all those who would help me. And therefore, I look with settled satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in him than to trust even in princes. Nations have surrounded me, but in the name of Yahweh, I will surely cut them off. They have surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of Yahweh, I will cut them off. And he's not talking about a physical victory they surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. He is my strength, my song. He has become my deliverance. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die but live. And tell of the works of the Lord. He has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to Yahweh. This is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous will enter through it. This is the path into his presence. And I will give thanks to you, for you have answered me. You have become my deliverance. Now, maybe you'll recognize this next section The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This doing, this realization of faithfulness, this accomplishment on God's part connected with this stone. This is the day that the Lord has made. What day? That day. That's the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save. We beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity, well-being. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has given us light. Buying the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His covenant faithfulness is everlasting. What's the centerpiece? The stone coming, achieving that work. God's faithfulness is everlasting. Father, I I pray that you would help us to be a faithful people and that you would help us to even be encouragers to one another. Even as we considered last hour what it is to be faithful counselors, what it is to press one another to find their dependence, their hope, their surety, their resource in you and the life that they have in you. You are for us You have taken us up in your very life and being in the Messiah by the spirit to be taken up in the very life of the Godhead. That's what it means that our God is for us. And if you are for us in that way, who can be against us? Yes, we will suffer. Yes, life is hard. Yes, adversity is always around the corner. Yes, death awaits us one way or the other. But you have done valiantly. And the stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. And you are building your house on him whose house we are. This is the day that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Father, cause us to stand fast, cause us to bear faithful testimony in a world that seems to be spinning out of control where everyone is spun up and everything is unsettled and, and there's no rest and there's no peace and there's antagonism and agitation. May we be a people who are bearers of peace, not as the world knows it, but as it is, yes and amen in the Messiah. A people who manifest the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. May we stand firm in the storm and may we be shoulders to lean on, a part of that cord of many strands that isn't easily broken. As we help one another, as we stand together with one another, as we encourage one another, don't you know what it is to be bound up in our God, in Christ? Can we not stand? Can we not prevail? Can we not endure with cheerful, settled, peaceful hearts? Help us in these things. May we not be a grasping people, but may we cling to the God who has grasped us. All these things we entrust to you and ask of you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.